Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 83 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Hugh Howey, best known as the author of Wool a self-published science fiction novel about the inhabitants of a futuristic bomb shelter called The Silo. The book became a runaway bestseller on Amazon.com, netting Howie over $100,000 a month in sales. He also recently sold the print rights to Simon & Schuster in a six-figure deal, and the book has also been optioned for film by Ridley Scott, director of Blade Runner and Alien. Then stick around after the interview as we discuss the current state of self-publishing with guest geek Tobias S. Bakel. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Hugh Howie. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, David. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. Okay, so you started self-publishing these ebooks on Amazon.com just a few years ago. And so could you just tell us at that point, how long had you been writing for and had you ever tried working with a traditional publisher? I started writing in 2009 and my very first manuscript, I just started sending out to friends and family. And my idea was to polish it up and maybe serialize it on a blog or something, just give it away. And I had enough people tell me I, I should explore publishing this because uh, they liked it better than stuff they're reading out of the bookstore. So uh, I kind of got um, peer pressured into going that route and ended up with a small press and it, everything went well. But I well, guess what I saw is the way that they were publishing it, all those tools were available to me. So I thought uh, I could do this. So when the contract came in for my second book, I decided to self-publish instead, and I've been doing that ever since. And, and so uh, what made you ultimately decide that self-publishing was right for you? And uh, did you know other people who were doing it? Or No, I didn't. And I, I you know, I had, I had no aspirations of making it as a full-time writer, to be honest. Self-publishing for me was a way of, of getting published. And the other way was took years of querying, trying to land an agent, trying to get a publishing contract, a year from the publishing contract to actual publication. So it was never about making money or trying to get into bookstores. For me, it was all about writing stories and then trying to distribute them. And the self-publishing tools like print-on-demand and the e-publishing just made it possible to give myself a wide reach with zero upfront cost and no time wasted. I mean, like I heard you say that before Wool came out that you would sort of laid out on an internet message board what your plan was for what you hoped would happen with it? Well, it wasn't so much what I thought would happen with me. I my I geek out over publishing in general. I was working at a bookstore and I, I just love uh, watching the, the changes in that industry. And what I was postulating was that in the future, people wouldn't worry about getting agents or querying or writing pitch and proposals and things like that. They would simply go directly to the reader and establish a relationship there. And once their uh, demand hit a certain level, agents and publishers would come to them. So you know, it was something I thought would happen to other people. It's mm. just, it's bizarre that within a few months of mm. posting that, it started happening to me. But at the time, I was laughed out of the forums. They, they said I was crazy. Agents didn't have time to browse bestseller list. Some of those agents who piped in and said that are, are doing that now. So it, it just happened. The changes happened so fast that what seemed ridiculous within a year has now become standard. And what what sort of 
websites were those that you were hanging out on and posting messages on? I will say one of the better places I've found on the internet for aspiring writers now, and I think traditionally published authors can learn a lot by hanging out there. It's the Writer's Cafe on Kindle boards. And that's where um, Amanda Hawking used to hang out there, David Doglish, some of the you know pioneers of self-publishing. They share their what works and what doesn't, what they're writing, what promotions work, how to price their work, all the questions you could come up with. It's it's all in these forums. It's really impressive. Okay, so then let's talk about wool. Uh, so could you just walk us through how you came up with that idea and how it developed into the omnibus? Yeah, it was, I had a I had the idea for a longer novel, but I was writing several novels a year, but I didn't have time to get to this one story, and it was really consuming me. So I decided to write it in a, as a shorter piece, and it ended up being about twelve and a half thousand words. And the idea was a a world where you know people live underground in this silo, but their only view of the outside world is this single screen. And the idea came to me from going, moving from a, a career as a yacht captain and traveling widely and, and seeing the world and living in it to being domesticated by my lovely wife uh, and living in one place and relying on TV, the internet, newspaper to know what the world was like. And it was terrifying to see how different the picture was painted because of the filters of, you know, the only thing that really makes it into news is, is bad news typically. And so I, I came up with the idea of this world where the only thing you know about the outside world is this, this screen that filters uh, that view. And, and what do you trust? And what does that do to the people living inside the silo? Do they, uh, become terrified to explore do they you know what what does that do to their sense of hope that to me is the character in the story more than the silo that first short story was that wall screen and then from there uh the the demand for more caused me to serialize and write the rest of the the series which is what's been combined into a single novel now how did the demand actually first start to come about did people just email you directly or did they post messages like in reviews on Amazon? And that's where you determine that, oh, people really love this and I need to write more of it. Yeah, that's exactly it. They did both of those. I was getting emails from all over the world. And I was also, the reviews were very personal. Um, from the very beginning, people would write a review as if they were writing it directly to me. You know, they would say, great book. Uh, where's the rest of us? And if you're reading this, please keep writing more. And so I would, uh, even comment on the review and say, all right, you know, I'll, I'm, I'm working on it. And I basically dropped what I was writing my, my next novel and went back to this world and wrote another short piece. And I figured that's what they enjoyed the first time, something you could finish in an hour. And I uh, published the second story and started on the third and um, wrapped it up in, in these five entries. And together they form like a 550 page novel. But uh, yeah, it was, it was real fun getting the feedback during that process. Uh, so is it fair to say that you, you started the first one just intending that to be a standalone and then parts two, three, four, and five, you sort of plotted out the whole thing and then wrote them? Or did you write them one at a kind of come up with the ideas one at a time? Yeah, I wrote the first one as a standalone and there was going to be no more. Anyone who's, who's read the work can kind of see how that was the case. But um, starting with the second one, I plotted out what now is uh, even the works I'm working on now. Uh, I had to come up with the backstory and the 
the eventual fate of these characters. So um, I've got it plotted out to the end of Dust, which is uh, the end of the the saga, and then uh, I'll move on to something else. Yeah, I guess maybe just could you lay out, There's currently there's the Will Omnibus, and then what else comes after that? Uh, so in, in the end, it'll be three collected novels. The first is Wool, and, uh, which is the omnibus edition of Wool. And then the second is Shift, and the third is Dust. And so like Random House in the UK is publishing this as a trilogy, and they um, already contracted that and got the artwork and the pre-order pages. And Shift will be out uh, next month uh, or in April, and Dust will be out by the end of the year. Actually, speaking of artwork, I saw you got this amazing fan artwork for Wool. Yeah, you talk about the one with Juliet, like in the suit. Yeah, looking. yeah, it's by a professional artist, I think, and he just did it for you for for fun. Yeah, yeah he Jasper Shores did that. He, uh, he lives in the Netherlands, and he is a a master Dutch trained artist, and he 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 like designed the currency for Fiji of all things, mm -hmm. and it does ad campaigns for Fortune five hundred companies. And he sent me two pieces, just out of nowhere, that piece and a cover for the first Molly Fied story. And I've now commissioned him to do more cover art and redoing the Molly Fied books with his cover art on it. The guy's amazing. All right, well, let's talk about the setting of the silo. Uh, could you just talk about what sort of research you did uh, or did you consult with anyone uh, in coming up with the mechanics of that place? No, I, I thought I was making this all up. What's interesting is I've seen people who are converting old Atlas missile silos into, I mean, they look exactly like the way I envision it and describe the silo with like living quarters and mechanical spaces at the bottom and hydroponic gardens. Um, so it's, uh, I guess, an idea that's been independently converged on by several, several people. But in my story, the silo is much deeper. It's 144 levels and uh, there's, it's very delineated by class and, and by profession. So at the very bottom, you have the mechanics and in the middle, you kind of have the middle class, the merchants and the, uh, and the farmers. And up top, you have more of the, uh, white collar jobs and the administrative personnel. And like most good dystopia, there's a lot of satire and commentary on the human condition there. I mean, one of the technical details that really struck me was that when people are sent out from the silo, the chamber fills with argon gas. And I was just wondering, like, how did you come up with that detail? I thought that was really cool. Yeah, it was the idea of having a pressurized compartment so that the outside air was kept outside. And I thought a, a, a noble gas or something that wouldn't, something that was readily available, but uh, wasn't a reactant would be intelligent. Uh, had I known when I wrote that, that like half a million people would read it, I, I probably would have done more research, but a lot of it's just, common sense i guess and uh I, I, there's probably physicists reading some of this and and cringing i've seen <laughs> some people take umbrage with some things that are not commonly understood like someone wires a pump up underwater which i've done before it's completely possible so mm, well yeah i mean while i was reading this i was thinking to myself that this is a guy who knows a lot about mechanical things and a lot about computers could you just talk about what sort of personal experiences you drew on to create the silo? Yeah, I've, I've been a bum most of my life. <laughs> it, it really helps to like have about 20 professions behind you, I believe, to be a writer. My first career out of high school was as a computer repair technician. And it was in the mid-90s when people were just getting online and 
uh, AOL discs were everywhere and Windows 95 was coming out. And from there, I my next big career was as a yacht captain and, and you become a jack of all trades when you operate big boats. I mean, these were 100 foot plus motor yachts with several decks and levels and smaller boats inside of them and pumps and engine rooms. And um, you, you have to be a, an electrician and a mechanic and a, a carpenter and uh, know how to you know, lay out fiberglass and do all kinds of things. So um, growing up on a farm, my dad was a small grain farmer and we were always fixing things there. I just think all those experiences helped. And so you had grain silos in the backyard, right? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we had, I grew up with these big grain silos we used to climb around inside and on top of. I don't know if having those there influenced me or not, but uh, they're definitely part of my childhood. Uh, so were there any books in particular that were an influence on wool? I don't know about books that influence wool. I think someone pointed out to me some of the similarities are like really glaring uh, in hindsight, but at the time I, I wasn't thinking about them. But I, when I was in talks with one TV production company, they were like, are you a fan of the Fallout games? And I thought, oh, God, yeah, how can mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm surprised I didn't call up the vault instead of the silo. But I played the original two Fallout games when I was young, and I didn't get into the first-person shooter variety that have come out more recently, but that's, I guess, was really popular when the wool book started getting popular, so a lot of people saw that as an influence. I would say, book-wise, 1984, Brave New World, Fahrenheit 451, those sort of stories influenced me in seeing science fiction as a form of satire did you ever read a book called this time of darkness by hm hoover by any chance i have not okay that was the one that it reminded me the most of uh it's about these people and they're in kind of a multi-level structure and they believe that the whole world outside is completely irradiated or something and they don't even know that they're underground and it turns out at the end that they're underground and that the people on the surface everything's fine and they don't even know that these people are living uh underground That's great. Um, yeah, and I, you know, it's and what's amazing is how rare an original idea is. I've got several other stories, and some of my harshest reviews are people accusing me of ripping off stuff that I've never read or seen or heard of. I think non-writers don't understand how the idea is the easiest part of writing. You know, everyone has ideas. The hard part is sitting down and spending the hour after hour after day after day to turn it into a book. Uh, I actually don't like reading in, in the genres that I write in because if I encounter anything that's similar to something that I'm working on that I can't, I can no longer work on it. I have to do something different. Yeah, I was actually going to bring up uh, the Fallout series because I also saw that uh, parallel as well. And to me, it was interesting because I felt like you really did a good job of, uh, I mean, well, I mean, I guess it's because you did, you weren't consciously uh, influenced by it, but it, I thought it was really well done in the sense that it felt fresh, even though it was a familiar idea. And I think that's a large part of the trick of what you're talking about that that non-writers don't understand is that it's like making that thing feel fresh, even when it's something that we've seen before. Yeah, people living underground. I mean, 12 Monkeys, I thought, uh, you know, that has a very uh, similar kind of setting. People underground and the world's gone to hell. That is such a common theme that uh, I saw someone else compared it to um, Ember or yeah, City, City of Ember. Yeah, yeah. I haven't even seen this movie, and I've got a uh, someone all over my case for ripping off <laughs> that I've never seen before. People living underground is such an old concept. 
I, I just think that if anyone thinks that that's what this story is about, people living underground, then I did a horrible job telling <laughs> the story because that's the most boring and easy part of this story. That's why I support fan fiction. I, I think people writing uh, stories in my world, my world is the easy part. You know, you can write a story in the world we live in or the time of Alexander the Great. That doesn't give you a story. It just gives you a setting. Well, yeah, let's talk about the fan fiction. Am I uh, understanding it right that you're actually encouraging people to write and sell um, fan fiction that they write set in your world? Yeah, is that a bad idea? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. There's this <laughs> there's this sort of um, all the older writers that I talk to seem to think that you're in danger of somehow losing your rights to the story if you do that. But I don't know. If, if, I, if, if I lose my rights to the story, that means we can all write in that world, right? I mean, I, I can't imagine what bad could come of this. I plan on writing three novels in this world, and then that's it. I'm going to move on to other stuff, and I encourage anyone. I think it's just unbelievable flattery that anyone would want to write in a world that you made up. And I, I think uh, creative endeavors, if they can be supported by paying customers, that's just that's brilliant. And um, I just got an email from someone today who wrote poetry uh, inspired by wool, and enough people have bought his 99-cent book of poems to fill up his car with gas this week and what that meant to him and it, it like brings tears to my eyes to think that there's another uh, artist out there who's earning something by bringing other people happiness it's just incredible i mean i want that to be the case i really would like to encourage more fan fiction and things for everything but Older writers, they always cite this, uh, older fantasy and science fiction writers, they always cite this case, I don't know the details, but somehow Marion Zimmer Bradley had encouraged fan writers, and then one of them had showed the book to her, and then she wrote a book that was kind of similar to one of these fan things, and then the fan sued her for like stealing her idea, and it was a whole big mess. It's like stuff like that. that... Yeah, I'm, I, I'm not going to let the... Um... There's so many good things you can do and letting the chance of a bad thing happening stop you from doing good things, I think, is just not how I want to act. I, I, I think living in fear is just uh, it, that's kind of what wool is about. It's about whether or not you should live like that or live completely naive the way I live. And I would rather be naive and get burned than live with the idea that we have to have a leviathan, you know, locking everything down. So when did you first get the hints that wool was going to turn into this big phenomenon? And uh, what are just some of the big milestones that stick out in your mind? God, I feel like I'm still not uh, processing that this is becoming a <laughs> phenomenon. I still feel like in a lot of ways, it's still an unknown thing and still underground and that it's going to stay that way. I'm having a really difficult time coming to grips with how many people have, have seen or heard of this or read it. Some of the big milestones to me were, you know, when agents started getting in touch just over a year ago and when publishers started making offers and seeing uh, my name in Publishers Weekly or a story on me at Entertainment Weekly. And then uh, the Ridley Scott deal was a big milestone, just hearing that he was interested and then, and then signing a deal with him and Steve's Alien. And the Random House in UK publishing deal and seeing the book in bookstores in, in London and then Simon & Schuster release here in the U.S. So I don't know. It's like uh, we're up to like 26 foreign countries have picked this up. And the fact that someone like John Joseph Adams is, is <laughs> interested in anything I've written for one of his anthologies, it's just, I, I geek out over all of this stuff. 
seems like every week there's some kind of weird milestone. Uh, actually, you know, you mentioned the Ridley Scott deal. Uh, uh, do you know like how likely it is that they're actually going to make a movie? Or I mean, because I know a lot of things get optioned and a lot of things they get optioned and it's great and and then nothing ever happens. Uh, I mean, do you have you ha- had any feedback to how likely it is it's actually going to happen? Yeah, uh, I I went into this telling everyone, look, there's never going to be a movie. They just they option the book and that's what happens to books. And then they they never you know look at Ender's Game. It's one of the my favorite books of all time, and it's been decades in development hell and it's just now hopefully coming out i guess it's a done done deal now yeah, no, but, it's definitely coming out now yeah yeah but you know there, there were for so long i've been telling everyone there's no chance and man the, the producers and the executives at fox are leading me to believe otherwise so uh i would say right now the chances are about 50 50 which are which is huge i think for film i mean it's uh, about as good as the odds ever get so looking back, uh, what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of starting out as a self-published author, do you think? Uh, the advantages, God, uh, this podcast probably is not long enough. Mm-hmm. Um, but the biggest advantage is the patience. Your book does not have to, when you hit release, your book does not have to do well the first week like it does with a traditional book where you've got a limited window and it's only on the shelf for a few months. Uh, and, and John, you know this as well as anyone with your anthologies, how you're not going to see sales 10 years from now. Um, you really have to blow it out early on with self-publishing. It could be 10 years before your books take off. So there's, there's no, uh, you don't have to be impatient with the book doing well. And you also can spend more time writing. I think there's this misconception that self-published authors have to do all this extra work. I've never been busier than when I started signing traditional contracts hmm. and publishers have all these media demands and, and I'm, flying around and doing, you know, signing contracts and talking to agents and doing book tours. So when you self-publish, you don't spend time querying and doing all those other things. You get the book as perfect as you can. You make it available and you work on the next thing. Um, Another advantage is you don't have any non-compete clause. You can publish in whatever genres you want and as often as you want in whatever length you want. Um, You make a lot more money. The royalty difference is huge. I know there are tens of thousands of writers out there making, uh, paying a bill or making a full living off their writing. And I would say that number used to be in the hundreds of people living off their fiction alone. So the number of writers who are earning is just blowing up. So uh, the disadvantage, I don't know if I can think of any. I mean, you're not going to get your book in bookstores, but very few authors are making a living from selling books in bookstores anyway. Most of them are spying out and only there for a, a short period of time. So I don't know if that's a, a huge thing you're giving up. When you say that there are tens of thousands of uh, independent authors making a living, where is that figure coming from? Is that just, do you know that just from Amazon or like where is that reported? Yeah, I know that from Amazon. I'm trying to get them to release the numbers, but I've uh, I spent time with the uh, people at Amazon who go over these things. And, you know, I've, I've had dinner with the, uh, the heads of KDP and CreateSpace. And and I, I think I've met most of the management there, except for Jeff Bezos. So this is the thing that I'm trying to get them to to really highlight because they, they love highlighting. And I think if they do a good job of this, they highlight the outliers like myself and how many of their bestsellers of 2012 were self-published, which I think was like a quarter of them. But to me, the story, what I think I think is more fascinating is how many people are making $200 a month 
self-publishing. And when I pose that question, I can get some vague numbers from them. They know the actual numbers. I think it's, they're just trying to figure out how to reveal that story the best. How do you think readers actually find self-published authors? Like, do you have any ideas how people actually found wool and how it got into the public consciousness like it did? Obviously, uh, once you get some success, word of mouth can sort of spread. But it always has kind of puzzled me how in the sea of everything that's available on Amazon, how you even find something like that. One of the ways is all, all indie authors become indie uh, readers. And you interact with each other and you say, hey, check out my work. And uh, when you find something great, you end up telling all your friends about it. And they trust you because you're a writer. So I, I, a lot of it's discovered there. And I meet more and more readers now. Like uh, I interact with thousands of readers on, on my Facebook page who say they only read indie authors now because of the price of entry and the joy of discovery. It's like listening to indie rock bands. For people who don't read that way, they can't conceive that there are people who read like that. It's like the people who only listen to top 40 music can't conceive of someone going into a, a record store back when they had them and grabbing a CD off the shelf that they've never heard of just because of the name of the band and the name of the songs and some jacket copy and some art. Like who in the world would ever buy an album like that? But I used to buy albums like that. And I used to love when I actually found a good one. And I would tell all my friends like about Blind Melon, this crazy band that I discovered on my own and saw it when there were 10 people in the audience. And when they blow up, it's like, that's such a great feeling. And there's, there are, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of readers out there who are just downloading free books, 99 cent books, reading a few pages at a time. If they don't like it, they read the next one. They're not out that much money. When they find a great one, they read it all the way through and they tell 10 other people about it. And that's, that's how this is happening. My wool took off by word of mouth alone. I had no, there was no marketing or promotion behind it at all until it was selling a thousand copies a month. Can you say like, who are some of the other indie authors that have blown up or that you think will blow up soon? Yeah, it's hard to predict who will blow up soon. I mean, the ones who have blown up, a lot of them are romance and the new adult authors like Colleen Hoover and Bella Andre. Matthew Mather is a guy that I think deserves to be read. David Adams is another guy that I really like. I think Annie LeMay is um, going to win a Hugo and a Nebula at some point in her career. I'm sorry, Annie ba uh, Bellet. I've promoted a lot of people on my website. When I discover a great piece of indie work, and some of the fan fiction writers who are now working on other stuff, like W.J. Davies, who wrote The Runner, a wool uh, piece of fan fiction. He's working on this novel. And I can tell you from reading his fan fiction, like I'm, I'm pre-ordering his novel. It's uh, the guy can write. So um, yeah, I, I find a lot of these stuff, uh, these things from hanging out and writing forums and from having people send me sample chapters. And if they can capture me in the first sentence or two, then I'll read the rest of what they sent me. And then I want to read more. Uh, so uh, after all your uh, indie success, you eventually did get an agent uh, uh, and started signing book deals with traditional publishers. Uh, Why did you finally decide to make that transition? Well, initially, we weren't going to sign any deals here in the U.S. Uh, I was never going to give away my digital rights because that's really where the money is. As soon as publishers get a hold of ebook rights, one of the first things they do is they jack up ebook prices to protect the, the print rights. And I always thought that was unfair to readers to do that and bad for the product as well. So we started signing foreign 
contracts. And then that's the Random House UK deal was really exciting because that was the first foreign deal that was going to be in my language. I could be a part of the editorial process. And it was like having a real publisher, but I wasn't competing with myself because that wasn't a big market for me. The reason I signed with Simon & Schuster is uh, they finally came to me with the print-only deal that we heard would be an impossibility. And within eight months of turning down other offers, they finally came to us with uh, what was pretty a, a groundbreaking deal. So I, uh, I still consider myself a self-published author. Someone's just printing the physical copy of, of what I've already done the, uh, in ebook form. And all my other books that I've released since then, I've gone straight to self-publishing. No part of me wants to query or wait for a publisher to do anything. I'm just going straight to the reader. And if a publisher wants to do something with that work afterward, I'll listen to what they have to say. But I don't want the validation of going with the traditional publisher. I, To me, my position is stronger being an indie author than it would be to think of myself as a traditionally published author. Okay, so John was telling me that you guys actually met at Worldcon in Chicago last year. So could you just talk about how you guys ran into each other and what sorts of things you talked about? Yeah, so John got in touch uh, before Worldcon, I believe. Yeah, and we, yeah, we talked about hopefully collaborating on something or writing something for Lightspeed or one of his anthologies. And I told him what a huge fan of Wastelands I was. And we geeked out over, I guess we had a little mutual ama- uh, admiration society forming there and um and so we definitely said we got to meet up while we're both at uh worldcon and while we we're there we decided to go to lunch and john and his wife and i went to this great little sandwich place and we spent a couple of hours in person talking and getting to know one another and talking about science fiction and what we're reading and, and all this other stuff and it wasn't until um we were we walked all the way back to the hotel and I asked John, like, where else have you lived? Because I knew he was on the West Coast. And he said he grew up in Florida. And I thought, oh, that's crazy. That's that's where I live now. He asked him where he grew up, and he said Fort Pierce. And I said, no way. That's where my wife grew up. She grew up in Fort Pierce. And I said, what uh, school did you go to? So he said, Lincoln Park. I said, I think, I'm pretty sure that's where she went. What year? And he was like, well, I would have been in the class of um, 94. And so, and so you said, you know, oh, my wife's Amber Lyda. And I'm like, holy crap, I totally remember her just from her name. And like, I just knew exactly who you were talking about. And given that I hadn't kept in touch with my high school classmates, I, it wasn't entirely, uh, you know, it wasn't like to be expected that I would have actually known who you, who you were talking about. But um, yeah, no, it was funny. I, I mean, we were probably in most of our classes together from like seventh through 10th or something. Um, and then I actually dropped out of high school, so I didn't actually finish uh, there, but but so seven through 10, we were in a lot of classes together. And I dropped out of college. And, and then meanwhile, Amber went on and got uh, a doctorate. So she shows uh, the kind of people she hangs out with, I guess. <laughs> I, I didn't actually realize that you were familiar with John's work before meeting him. One of the things that he has a note here about is that he's like, finally, I met someone who appreciates the difference between dystopian and post-apocalyptic fiction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because we had a panel uh, before we had lunch. We actually had a panel the day before. We didn't really get to talk uh, ap- before or after the panel. We just, you know, talked to each other and the audience on the panel. But it was uh, it was on the difference between dystopian and post-apocalyptic fiction. And uh, and actually, it was really exciting to see that that room was like full. It was jam-packed with people and a lot of young people, too. So that was really encouraging, actually. Yeah, I had several people later uh, tell me that that was their favorite panel of the whole uh, of Worldcon. And there were people sitting in the aisle and standing at the back. and crowding around the door. It was uh, very exciting. See, Hugh, and then I hear that you just got back from a big book tour. 
So do you have any funny stories from that trip? Yeah. Um, gosh, too many funny stories. Um, uh, boy, it was amazing. It started off in Austin at South by Southwest, and I got to spend some time with Ernie Klein there, the author of Ready Player One, who drives a DeLorean, which is as cool as that sounds. I actually got to ride in Ernie Klein's DeLorean and you know go to lunch with him. And the next night we went out to a, film, a movie and um, I kept thinking it was going to go further, but we never reached <laughs> our first base together. But I'll never forget the two nights we had. Uh, and also in Austin, I was there when the Wall Street Journal article came out about me. It's the front, the entire front page and one whole, and the whole second page inside the Friday art section. And I happened to have one in my hand when I was waiting in line for lunch and I saw David Carr of the New York Times standing there. And it's occurred to me that David hasn't, well, not, not just David, but really no one has written on what we talked about earlier. The fact that self-publishing is becoming a way for authors to make a living writing, not just for outliers like myself, but for, for the mid-list self-published authors. And so I went up to David Carr and said, hey, uh, I'm a huge fan of your work. Uh, I mean, I, I, didn't, I don't know if I mentioned this to him, but I get home delivery of the New York Times. I read it every day and I love it. But I told him, I'm a huge fan of your work. Uh, I really think you guys should be covering this. And I handed him a copy of his competition. And uh, he's a, probably a pretty flat, demeanored guy anyway, but it, it didn't make him... He wasn't thrilled to be handed a copy of the Wall Street Journal. Let's put it <laughs> that way. But yeah, he was busy talking to other people. And didn't, I don't think he ended up reading the article, but I thought that was funny to see, see one of my heroes and then realize later that I probably, uh, I don't know, it's probably not the smart thing to do to go hand him a copy of the Wall Street Journal. John, John has a note here. It says, um, speaking of Ernest Klein's DeLorean, he describes it as a Back to the Future modded DeLorean. Is that, were there any Back to the Future modifications on that car? Oh, yeah. He had a, had a flux capacitor. It had, um, uh, it had a hoverboard and little Lexan stand, so it looked like the thing was hovering when he put it on the ground. It also had some Ghostbuster uh, stuff in the, tr you know, the trunk is in the front. And um, that was full of uh, ghost trap and ecto beams. And um, it had a Knight Rider, like the kit, red light across the grill. So, uh, yeah, it was really cool. He, he's the real deal. He is the guy from Ready Player One. Any progress on convincing him to drop Patrick Rothfuss as his best friend and declare you his best friend instead? No, and there's no chance in hell. Patrick Rothfuss is so much cooler than I am. Oh, another cool thing that happened at Worldcon, I, I go to my reading, which was in this small room, and the room was packed. And I thought, no one's heard of me. Why is this room full? Well, Patrick Rothfuss was speaking in that room after me. And it, was, it was too small of a room for him. And the people who put on Worldcon must have not known who he was because he hadn't released something anytime soon. They just don't know that this guy is you know, the next uh, George R.R. R. Martin. You know, the next um, Tolkien, maybe. So uh, they didn't prepare adequately, and they had him talking after me in this tiny room. So all these people came an hour early to get seats, and they were going to, you know, suffer through my reading. <laughs> so when he showed up, the, by then the hallway was packed, and we had to, you know, leave to go to another uh, room, and he led us like a piper leading uh, rats. And we all followed dutifully, and we crammed into this even you know, the room was four times as big and we still couldn't get everyone in. And boy, he was the, the most engaging, charismatic speaker I've ever seen. So I think Ernie has done 
very well to land Patrick Rothfuss as his best friend. <laughs> I'm happy being like his third or fourth best friend, if, if I can even claim that. So what did you read at Worldcon? I read uh, The Walk Up Nameless Ridge, which is, uh, I think, only available as a Kindle single. I uh, wrote it in a day, and I think it's one of my stronger pieces. And I submitted it to that program just to see if, you know, they've rejected a couple things in the past for me because of how long it's been since they've been published. And this is the first thing that I really ever submitted to anyone to see if it would win inclusion and, and something like that. And the advantage was, you know, it's a double royalty rate for 99 cent work. And I mm. thought I've not got nothing to lose. And I think it's one of my better pieces. So you have a new apocalyptic story called Deep Blood Kettle in the April issue of Lightspeed, uh, which is available now or will be after we hear this. You want to just briefly tell listeners about that one? Yeah, that, that's another one that came to me a, a lot of, uh, similar to the Walk Up Nameless Ridge. Is I got up to write something else that day and ended up writing what was initially called The Cliff. And this was back in December, November or December, I believe it was. And the fiscal cliff was... The, the big thing in the news. And so I wrote a piece that features humanity at this quandary and they can choose one of two things and they, they need to choose in order to save themselves. And it's the, the tension of whether or not they'll make the right choice. And I drew on growing up the son of a farmer and that's the, the main character in the story. So by the time it came out, I mean, it was, I thought it was really cool of you to express interest in it. Otherwise, I would have just put it up on my website or something and, and called it The Cliff. But I think it works better as something that isn't grounded in that one instant of um, current events. I think it speaks to a broader truth, and I like the title better now. So, But yeah, the best part of that was working with someone of your stature as an editor and making it a, a better work. It was a lot of fun. All right, cool. So well, why don't you tell us, besides Wool, uh, what other works do you have that people should go check out? Well, I have a young adult sci-fi saga series, uh, the Molly Fied series that I think is not too shabby. Uh, Halfway Home is does really well. It's a very popular work, and that one's being shopped around for a possible film deal now. Uh, what's what's I, the premise of that one? Uh, Halfway Home is like um, uh, Lord of the Flies meets Alien. It's a colony ship where the people are sent as embryos and they're grown in vats. But in this one case, the something goes wrong and the uh, most of the colonists die in this uh, huge fire and the other the rest escape and they're only half formed. So they're 15 years old instead of 30 and they only have half their training. And uh, so chaos ensues and they um, have a hard time getting along and figuring out how to survive on this alien world. The controversial thing about it, I guess, is that the main character is gay, even though it's not a story about being gay. It's just, I thought, you know, six to eight percent of all protagonists should be gay just statistically, but they're not because we typically only write with gay protagonists when the whole story is going to be about their gayness. And as someone who's a proponent of gay rights, I think that's uh, not how it should be. My best fan mail comes from people who've read that work. And appreciate the fact that I just made the character gay without it being about their being gay. And also get my only hate mail really comes from people who think it's not fair for me not to warn them going in. 
that the character is going to be gay, which I think is so sad that that's something someone would want to be warned away from. So that's that's one of my works to avoid if that if that's your thing. Hmm. Uh, and and I tell everyone not to read iZombie because it's um, a very bleak and disgusting story, but uh, it might be my most autobiographical and the one that's the dearest to me. But it's not for everybody. And just sort of what's it about? It's a zombie story told from the perspective of the zombies. And in this telling of it, they retain all of their memories. They know exactly what they're doing. They have their personality intact, but they can't stop themselves from being zombies. So they're watching themselves eat uh, strangers, family, friends, and there's nothing they can do. You know, they're in a locked in state. And I think to me, it's uh, a more interesting zombie because there's all these parallels. So each, chapter tells the story of a character who has a trait that's very human like drug addiction or you know repeated abuse to certain family members and it's things that you watch yourself do you wish you could stop but you can't you do it over and over again and it there are parallels drawn between what they're doing as zombies and what they remember doing as humans and so it's uh, it can be a very dispiriting book to read I warn them on the product page, like this is not a zombie book. This is something different because if you're, if you're getting this thinking, it's going to be people, you know, running around with shotguns, blowing the head off of zombies and how cool that is. It's not that kind of book. It's the horror of it is something deeper and, and more sinister. It's, um, uh, there, there are scenes in there that I, I won't describe on the podcast, but, um, <laughs> when I just did this book tour, I had people come up to me and go, okay. So the scene with the mom and her daughter in the tree, and then they'll just, stand back for me and shake their heads and put their hands up and their eyes will get wide. And that's like, that's all they have to say. And we just know the scene they're talking about. And, uh, and there's, there's just a handful of those that have had an impact on people. So people, you ju- you're just going to leave it to people's imaginations that, you know, there's a mom and a daughter in a tree. <laughs> you just that's have it. to imagine what might happen. So again, and that's not the worst scene in the book. I mean, there's, uh, there's other stuff. I, I don't even want to allude to what they're about. <laughs> Well, maybe you should consider reading those scenes live at events and see if you can get people to pass out like Chuck Palahniuk does. I did. I No, that's how this whole book came about. It's funny <laughs> you say that. All I had was chapters, and I thought, this one, I'm never publishing this. And I, I went to a live reading in Charleston, and someone convinced me to read. They'd seen uh, one of these chapters on my website, and they said, read iZombie. So I read these uh, three or four chapters, and the video went up on YouTube, and I, I just got a flood of people saying, you need to finish this. You need to publish it. And, uh, but yeah, while I was reading it, someone said they're eating chicken wings. And I was like, I don't know how you can do that. It's, <laughs> it's actually a, a, a chapter about someone eating chicken wings, someone trying to become a vegetarian in college and what that was like. And now they're a zombie eating people. And so I'm reading that and someone just in there licking their fingers and digging into a basket <laughs> of wings. Actually, speaking of YouTube, isn't there a video of you dancing in slippers or something like that? I I, I refuse to acknowledge that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is. There's my my dance videos. I they I don't know what harm that, that that's caused my uh, sales and my career, but I'm sure it's done some kind of harm. Like what's the, I don't even know what the story is, is. I just heard someone mention that. Yeah, I had um, so the one of the first friends I formed online who would give me editorial advice on my manuscripts like a beta reader but she was a a college editor so she could really tear my manuscripts to shreds and i I dedicated the first wool to her i told her once she 
I think I'd hit like 25 reviews on Amazon for one book, which I thought this is as many as I'll ever get for anything. And she was pointing out what a milestone it was. And I said, Hey, if I ever get to a hundred, I'll do a dance with a silly hat on. Hmm. And she never wrote reviews for my works, obviously, because uh, she helped edit some of them, but she didn't have any part in wool. And when they, when we hit 99 reviews, she wrote the hundredth hmm. email and said, Hey, and reminded me, I'd forgotten about the, the, the promise. So <laughs> like, ah, damn it. Did I really say that? So I uh, put on my wife's, xbox dancing game and it is my wife's game i'm having to you know i'll say that twice um, <laughs> and uh yeah put on uh this wool hat and some slippers that she had some clownfish slippers and did uh what was it the soldier boy was the song and i, I rehearsed a, rehearsed the song one time just to figure out how the game worked and uh, my wife's game and then uh ran through it one time and put it on youtube basically for lisa and my hundred other Facebook friends and uh it's uh gained some notoriety since because uh, a lot more people have seen it. Like how many views is it up to? I don't even want to look. I, <laughs> yeah, I don't go to that thing. I it, it has to be in the thousands now, but uh I cringe with everyone. So <laughs> um so you have to be careful. Uh, are you gonna do anything if you get to, I don't know how many reviews it's at now, but if it gets to five thousand or something, do you have uh, some something you're yeah, going to do i've stopped making <laughs> that because i did i did make a second promise someone said what are you going to do if you get to 200 and i said oh i'll do the time warp and um so there's now there's a video of my sister and i mm -hmm. doing time warp on the red steps on times square and at the time everyone wanted to know what the next dare was and i i, I made up a ridiculous number and i said you know at 1263 i'll do you know every song from greece <laughs> I, there's no way I can do that. Oh, and I said I'll do it in a poodle skirt. <laughs> no one wants to see that, so I'm not going to do it. And I've actually gone back on that promise because we did hit that number, and I've learned never to. I'm, I'm like any crazy thing is possible, so I'm not going to throw out stuff like that anymore. It's just too embarrassing. All right, cool. So, I mean, is there anything uh, that you're working on now? Anything coming up in the future that people should keep an eye out for? Uh, yeah. I mean, just uh, I'm going to keep writing and doing my thing i keep um promising to write a romance novel and that's that'll happen here soon and yeah i mean I, i'm just enjoying the process of um putting out stories and having people besides my mom read them it's really cool <laughs> all right great so i think we're going to wrap things up there so hugh howie thanks so much for joining us on geek's guide to the galaxy thank you guys thanks for having me and that was our interview so thanks so much to hugh howie for joining us on the show and as we mentioned, for our panel today, we'll be discussing the current state of self-publishing. And we're joined by a special guest geek, Tobias S. Bakel, the New York Times bestselling author of such novels as Arctic Rising, Crystal Rain, and Halo, The Coal Protocol. He also previously appeared as a guest geek in episodes 56 and 62. So, Toby, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. Okay, and so I confess that I didn't really know anything about Hugh Howey before we got set up to talk to him. And just in researching him, I really discovered there's this whole world of self-publishing stuff that I was really pretty not aware of. And so I'm sure you guys are a lot more plugged into this than I am. So I think just first of all, could you just explain a little bit about how this works and what your experiences have been? And so like John, uh, I've never put anything on Amazon.com. So for people who don't know 
how this works at all? Just what is the basic procedure for self-publishing something on Amazon.com? Yeah, so there's something called Kindle Direct Publishing, which uh, Hugh actually referenced in the interview, but he just called it KDP, which is the shorthand term that people use for it. And KDP is just the self-publishing platform that Amazon has, and it enables anybody to just set up an account and you can post whatever ebook you want. And uh, you can actually post it in like doc format. So if you have a novel, you can just upload it in doc format and they'll convert it for you. If you upload Mobi, that's the native format for Kindle. So that's what they want. But if you upload EPUB, they can actually convert it and, and it seems to work fine. But I mean, that's basically it. I mean, you just upload your cover, you put a little description in there. And then uh, within, uh, within a day or two, usually uh, Amazon publishes it. If you price your book between like $2.99 and I think $9.99, you get a 70% royalty. And then if you publish it and you price it at less than $2.99, meaning 99 cents to um, anything up to $2.99, you only get a 30% royalty. So they're really encouraging people to price it at $2.99 or above. Um, and I believe the cap is like $9.99. And I'm not sure what, if there's a royalty rate above that or what the difference is there, but maybe Toby knows. 35% if you're below $2.99 oh. and 35% if you're above $9.99. Gotcha. Um, there are a bunch of other places too, of course. There's uh, Barnes and Noble has Pubit, Kobo has Kobo Books, as Smashwords has a program, and of course you can sell directly off your own website too. But the idea is just that uh, with the explosion of ebook readers and e-ink displays and tablets and ebook readers on people's phones, iPhones and Android phones, and now Windows phones and you know uh, BlackBerry that uh, this has created a whole new sort of market and explosion in people reading ebooks. Okay, just what is Kobo and Smashwords? Uh, Kobo is, they initially created an e-ink reader. They're very popular outside of the US, so they're seen more in the UK, Canada, and parts of the rest of the world. And it's an e-ink reader, which is to say that it looks kind of like a Kindle, and it connects to their store. And they also provide software for iPhones and, and uh, I think iPhone, Android, maybe a couple other platforms. And you can also read Kobo books directly off your, your own uh, desktop software. So there are definitely a lot of outlets. And there are also a lot of uh, places like Waitlist Books. There's, there's an RPG store that also does a lot of ebooks as well. So consumers drive are through, drive through RPG. Yeah, drive through RPG. Thank you very much for remembering that. So there are a lot of places where people are starting to reach out and find that they can buy books and download them and read them with or without DRM, which is digital rights management. If you go through any of those services like Amazon Kindle Direct, you can turn on DRM and try and prevent people from spreading your book around, or you can actually just turn it off and upload it direct without DRM. And how about Smashwords? What is that? Smashwords was created by a gentleman named Mark Coker. It is a website where people can upload and sell what were initially Word files that were run through a uh, piece of software called the Meat Grinder that turned them into EPUBs and, and Mobis, uh, Mobi files, which are ebook files that people could read on pieces of software. Smashwords got popular because a lot of uh, people were using it to distribute to places like Apple iBooks, which is one I forgot to mention, iBooks as a store, of course, and to Kindle and everything like that. So you could load your book up in one place, Smashwords, and just distribute it out through all the other things without having to create accounts and upload them at each individual store. Okay. And then also, of course, publishers have all these people who specialize in layout and text design and stuff like that. So how hard is it to do all that stuff yourself? It varies. I mean, I 
handle a lot of ebooks for Subterranean Press and design. I'm their ebook conversion guy. So I actually spend a chunk of my week every week designing EPUBs and Mobis for them. And I do some freelancing on the side where I design ebooks for clients who want them made. And KDP lets you, if you follow their style guide, you can upload a simple Word document and go ahead and have your book made that way. Although I still, you know, there's there's something to still be said for design. You know, typography mm-hmm. has been beautiful. Books have been made beautiful for a long time. And, and, you know, adding those elements is, you know, it makes, it's part of the aesthetic experience. It's part of making it art. And, mm-hmm. you know, I really appreciate being a part of that. You know, even when there, I'm having a, a real bad day and I have to jettison mm-hmm. all sorts of cool stuff that I want to add because it's just not going to work when I load it up on my 10 different ebook readers and take a look mm-hmm. at it, you know, on all of them and go like, well, I, I have to design for the lowest common denominator. Is any web designer out there mm-hmm. will share my frustrations, you know, making sure something works on Netscape and Explorer and this, you know, you, you run into those problems, the same problems. It's sort of like we're relearning all the mistakes of the uh, early 90s in ebooks. <laughs> you know, one thing I find really interesting is that how easy it is now to make your ebooks look exactly as good as the ebooks from professional publishers. Like even if you're just uh, Joe Schmo, you know you're nobody. You can yeah. make your ebook look just as good, if not better than. Um, In than some cases, e-books. I think you can make them look better because oh, yeah, no, uh, some of these can. guys are just uh, running them through these uh, mm-hmm. fast optical character recognition systems yeah. and. You know, they're putting tables just up as a picture and there's stuff mm-hmm. you can't zoom in on or, or reformat. And, you know, I def- definitely see a lot of things where I end up shaking my head now as a designer, as a consumer, where I'll pay for a book and go like, who ran this through? Like, yeah. what is this? What am I reading? Why is this broken like this? <laughs> yeah, actually, I, w- I was really surprised because uh, when George Martin's newest book came out, I went ahead and I caught up with the series and, and I reread the first two books. And so I bought them all on ebooks just because I thought that would be easier. And I was surprised how bad the ebook conversions on those were. I mean, come on, this is George R. R. Martin. It's like I oh, thought, that's I mean, a shame to hear. You know, yeah. I mean, it's like they weren't terrible. Like I couldn't understand what was happening or anything. But I mean, it's like the the formatting was not up to the current standard. Like they had double spacing between the paragraphs instead of indents, which is not the usual format. And mm. also there was a bunch of OCR errors, you know, which is OCR is optical character recognition. It's when you scan a piece of text using a scanner and then you use software to determine what the letters are so that you don't have to transcribe everything. But there were some obvious OCR errors that didn't get caught. And in a lot of other like little things, like you say, like with zooming in on images and stuff, like you couldn't zoom in on the map at all. Um, that was at the front of the book and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, what I recommend a lot of writers do, because people then ask me, like, what's the best way to do this if I'm not an expert? And one of my favorite mechanical translators of ebooks, and everyone always goes like, oh, just download uh, Calibre and and run it through real quick. But I I find that that's not perfect. I really enjoy Scrivener's EPUB Mm -hmm. generator. Um, Scrivener is a piece of software for writers in Macintosh and now in Windows. But the Macintosh version ties into an HTML generator that's built into Macintosh's OS uh, 10 system. And it generates very clean, uh, strict XML 1.0 code that works really well for ebook readers. And so if you tell Scrivener to output as an EPUB, the people who designed Scrivener have really done a beautiful job of making what I think is right now on the market the best machine EPUB generator that exists out there. So if you take your manuscript and you chop it up chapter by chapter and you put it into Scrivener and you add a cover 
to uh, the outline on the left in the sort of hierarchical navigation panel, and you just go to File Export and export it as an EPUB, they make very beautiful EPUBs. And you can play around with it and change some of the fonts and try to make it look typographically nice, and it's good stuff. And so I tell a lot of people who are starting out, like, you know, if you're on a Mac, just go ahead and download Scrivener and go ahead and play with that until you get an EPUB that you think you like. You know, buy an ebook reader so you can see what the final form looks like and just keep tinkering until you get something you like. And then you can upload that to the different services. And you can also download Amazon's Mobi converter and install it on your uh, laptop and just tell Scrivener where that is. And it'll also automatically convert from EPUB to Mobi. So you can go ahead and grab yourself a Kindle reader and take a look at what it outputs to and just fiddle until you get something you like. And it's, it's a great way to go about it. Okay. And then what about cover art? Like, what are some of the best options for that? And then even how important is cover art for ebooks? I mean, like Hugh Howey's books that he did himself don't have particularly eye-catching cover art, and that doesn't seem to have hurt them. I think uh, cover art helps a little bit. I, I've done three different covers for a short story collection of mine called Tides from the New Worlds. And I'm fairly sure, based on two years of selling data, that uh, the current cover I have is helping it. The current cover I have is designed by Jen Reese, and uh, the current cover seems to be catching people's eyes a lot more than the previous two covers. And its sales have uh, popped up a little bit as a result of that. I think covers are uh, still important. They're not as important maybe as they are in the bookstore, but having a terrible cover is can be a real turnoff, I think, because I, I've certainly seen some authors who I know are good authors and I've seen their eBooks and I'm like, oh my God, that's just so bad that yeah. I, I think you're really doing yourself a disservice with that. <laughs> and it's like, you got to pay somebody to do it, man. You can't just grab some art and like, and, and mock up the title design because you've seen lots of book covers. It's like, there's more of an art to it than that. And, yeah. you know, as Toby mentioned, like Jen Reese, and there's other people like her who um, who do these kinds of things and you can hire them to do it. But there is an art to it. And and I, I think it's a lot easier to get away with a simple sort of book cover mm -hmm. on an ebook. And maybe the simple covers are even better than more complicated traditional book covers that have like cover art and everything like that, like or traditional type cover art with some, something illustrating something from the story, because you are going to be mostly selling it based on the text, I think, that you see on the screen. Uh, it's just the, the key is to make it so that the cover art is not offensive to the eye. It needs to be readable or understandable mm -hmm. 150 pixels wide. That's approximately the size of the preview cover art on listings mm -hmm. on the various places where books are sold. So, you know, the first thing I do when I see a piece of cover art is actually I save a version of it and then I quickly bump it down to 150 pixels wide and save it. And take mm -hmm. a look at how it looks. Is it legible? Kind of does it make sense? Is it bad? Like, what does it look like at 150 pixels wide? And then I also turn it into black and white because some people are still buying via their Kindle with a black and white mm -hmm. e ink display. So you go ahead and turn it into black and white and take a look at it and go, okay, what does it look like there? So if you do want to get cover art, though, I mean, there's some places that you can get fairly cheap stuff. There's sites like Photolia, which have a lot of stock type images. And so yeah. they have they have a lot of photos, but they also have a lot of illustrations and you can buy them for, you know, not very much money. And and then it gives you the right to use it and do basically whatever you want with it. And then you also if you really wanted something more like a traditional cover, you can sort of look around at. You can look on DeviantArt or something like that and find sort of up and coming artists and see if they have something that sort of would fit your cover. Like it wouldn't be exactly illustrating what you have in your book. It's probably less of an issue for me because I'm I'm finding covers for magazines and uh, and or 
potentially anthologies. So I'm not necessarily going to be trying to illustrate one particular thing. I, I'm just finding an illustration that conveys the general uh, idea of what the the book or magazine is. Sure. And and so that's a lot easier when you're finding when you're looking for existing pieces of art. But I can imagine a lot of books w- could also uh, work just as well with something vague or like if it's like a dragon or something like that, like it yeah. would be it would be easy enough to find something that already exists and maybe you can get it for a hundred bucks or something like that. Because a lot of these artists, they're not professional artists and they would be happy to work with somebody um, even if it's on a budget. And I've also uh, found a great deal of, you know, fun finding artists who are willing to work with me. Actually, I found, uh, I think the guy I found to work with me on Mitigated Futures, the collection I did, I had some black and white illustrations done on the inside. And I found him via an online website where he had some striking art. And I went to his website and I commissioned him, you know, uh, paid him to do some black and white interior art and uh there are people that you could commission to do a cover as well okay so i was looking at hugh howie's will on amazon.com and it has over four thousand customer reviews mm-hmm. now game of thrones has a little over three thousand customer reviews how is that possible <laughs> is, it, is it all hugh howie's dancing or like what <laughs> what explains that that's you know what is the magic sauce right i mean hugh howie is is along with Amanda Hawking and and some of the other standout writers are sort of the breakout successes. And, you know, someone has to be the breakout success. And, I, I guess and what I'm getting at is, is, is there some something special about the Amazon ecosystem or something? Because I was noticing that Hugh Howey, he has, I don't know, six or 7,000 uh, Twitter followers, you know, not a ton, um, uh-huh. about 1,000 likes on Facebook, not a ton, but this huge, huge mm-hmm. over overwhelming dominant presence on Amazon in particular. So is there some sort no, of... No, I mean, there's like this tipping point that happens. Uh, you know, once you achieve getting to number one, where that starts to grow and feed. And uh, he talked about this real interesting thing in his interview that there's uh, a whole group of people that are like indie band followers, that they're not even reading outside literature. They're just reading in this... Thing. And he was saying like how his initial spread of readership was through the other self-publishers inside of these forums, you know, and that was kind of what launched him. It was an interesting observation of his because it seems like he started out in an ecosystem that's completely separate than where everyone else is trying to get noticed. And so in some ways he's, you know, carried on the shoulders of all those people that uh, were in those forums that first discovered him and spread word to each other and maybe uh, are way more invested in promoting and, and reviewing inside of that Amazon environment. I think a factor in him reaching that huge number of reviews is probably has a lot to do with the fact that he is an indie author. And I think people are probably more likely to take the time to write a review of an indie author because they're like, well, this guy really needs this. Because, you know, he doesn't have a publicist. He doesn't have a whole publisher behind him. Whereas George Martin, it's like, well, nobody really needs to weigh in on how good George <laughs> Martin is, right? But for Hugh Howie, a lot of people probably, they think, oh, I found this awesome thing and I want to tell other people about it. And I want them to feel okay buying it because I know it's a scary thing when you're shopping for something that doesn't have that stamp of approval. And so I think that probably really is an impetus for a lot of people to write reviews where they might not otherwise. He's very engaged readership, right? Because of the story of where he came from and the book being, you know, coming out of that Amazon forums. You see that a lot, you know, like you see 
the really dedicated people, like some people use Goodreads as their forum where they have mm-hmm. this like really hardcore dedicated fans. You know, some people it's Facebook. Like you, every, every once in a while you run into someone who's got like, you know, tens of thousands of Facebook followers, but like, you know, you've never heard of them on Twitter. You don't see them in bookstores a lot, but they're, they have this dedicated fan base and they're able to make a living off of it. And that's one of the real interesting things about, you know, the age we live in, which is that because it's flat, if you can find a niche and build and go from there, like you can get that kind of engagement. I think in the 2000, early 2000s, there were some writers I was really impressed with who used LiveJournal in the same manner. They had like, you know, tens of thousands of people who followed everything they did on LiveJournal and had these sort of like reader engagement levels that I, you know, flat out envied because of that, you know, uh, engagement they had. And it's really impressive. And it doesn't have to happen just there. I mean, the internet has lots of different little ecosystems and niches, and you can see these things kind of the same behavior pop up in different areas. Um, You know, look at uh, John Scalzi, who has this really amazing sort of fan base and readership as a result of the whatever. And you can see that the that creates this sort of like very dedicated group of people who want him to succeed in a way that like someone who does not come with that existing fan base doesn't have behind them. You know, if they come out with a book out of nowhere and people are discovering them for the first time in a bookstore and they have no prior uh, relationship with him, it makes it a whole different thing because then people aren't necessarily rooting for you to succeed. They're just engaging in a commercial transaction. And actually, speaking of Goodreads, uh, just as we were about to start recording this, uh, the news broke that Amazon is buying Goodreads. And I saw on Twitter a bunch of people were uh, were ranting against it. And with probably, you know, uh, fair enough, I can understand that point of view. It, it will be interesting to see how they integrate it. I, I, I expect it will actually end up being good for people who sell stuff, a lot of stuff on Amazon just because it means that more reviews will end up over there and potentially yeah. drive uh, sales. So um, it, it is a, it is an interesting thing, though, because I, I have been fascinated by Goodreads and that community because a lot of people, like you were saying, do really have this uh, real community there. I tend to avoid reading Amazon reviews because like a lot of them are soul crushing because like they just, <laughs> they totally don't get it and they just felt compelled to review it anyway. And, and it's like, um, I, I don't know if it's more likely to run into those type of reviews with anthologies just because anthologies are always going to be a mixed bag, uh, because you know, not everyone's going to love every story. Uh, but I mean, that's, it's an anthology. So, you know, it's like, if you don't like this one, maybe you like the next one, but a lot of people will review them very, very negatively. And, um, and often miss the entire point. But uh, Goodreads, on the other hand, does have some of that, but I find it to be a much more positive community as opposed to the Amazon reviews, which feel toxic to me a lot, a lot of the time. <laughs> I, I think Goodreads has had its own share of controversies and explosions as well as any mm-hmm. very large group. But, uh, you know, since the whole point of Goodreads is the word good and uh, reads, mm-hmm. I think it's probably self-selects a little bit more than the more transactional na- nature of uh, mm-hmm. Amazon, which has come a long way from its roots as a pro-reading environment. They sell everything, you know, mm-hmm. they're a behemoth. So I, I think probably people at Goodreads are invested in the idea of reading and literature and yeah, reviewing. you don't want to go look at the reviews on crapreads.com. They're just... <laughs> <laughs> really, really negative. <laughs> so I think the community at Goodreads is spending a lot more time talking to each other about books and lists and things that they love and so forth and so on, which makes it an interesting literary community. And it'll be interesting to see how Amazon couples that to 
the existing review system that it has already. Uh, okay, so the other thing I really want to talk about is if you had asked me how many people who have never published a book with a traditional publisher are currently making a living selling ebooks on Amazon.com, I would have said like nine. <laughs> uh, but Hugh Howey s- seems to suggest it's like two, possibly three orders of magnitude more than that. And I'm just wondering what you guys think. How many people are actually making a living just off e- Amazon.com ebooks? I had a lot of trouble figuring out what he was trying to suggest with those numbers because he he said a lot of people are making a living and then he said making $200 or so a month, which left me, I, I would have liked to have heard what he thought people at Amazon were saying. Um, I, I'm such a numbers guy, so I just don't trust any uh, people, not Q, but like Amazon refuses to release raw numbers. They just... Traditionally, they always refuse to talk about raw numbers with KDP and everything related to KDP. They love promoting people like Hugh who break out huge and Amanda Hawking and so forth and so on. But it's been really frustrating to get them to talk about sort of the mid-list. And I speak as someone who's very interested in the mid-list because I'm mid-list. I'm not Hugh Howie. I've got a number of books and short stories. You know, Hugh talked about the fact that Will broke out with when it was just a short story. And I've seen a couple other authors who've broken out with 99 cent short stories that they turn into novels. You know, and I have like, you know, 20 or so. This these aren't sour grapes, but I mean I have like 20 or so short stories and they don't make 500 or so dollars a month like some people are being held up and being talked about. They make, you know, their little two dollars a month, you know, routine and and are basically invisible. I do a lot better on my novels and and my short story collections that are up there. Which makes sense to me because, in general, those are what sell better in the deals I have with traditional publishing as well. So um, I'm very curious to see if he can get, you know, Amazon to talk some real numbers because, you know, I have the sense from seeing a couple of self-reported, uh, self-publishing polls that people took, and the numbers that came out of that seem to demonstrate that most people are making like fifty dollars a month to $200 a month who are like the upper mid list. And lots of people are making you know little or nothing because it's a classic long tail scenario. And then there are these breakout people who are able to, you know, get enough books up there and make more. But, you know, inside of science fiction, I'm not seeing like truckloads of people making their mortgages on it. So I was a little bit surprised to hear him say that as well. And I'd love to see some more distinct figures on that. My sense is that romance is certainly doing really well with self-publishing, but that does really big numbers in traditional publishing as well. I mean, science fiction is, gosh, 1.7% or 3% of the entire fiction market. So the moment you decide to write in science fiction, mm-hmm. uh, you're limiting your potential audience immediately. But, you know, whenever I, I talk about, you know, I, I've successfully done uh, a Kickstarter and some digital sales and stuff. And so I'm a hybrid author who's talking about the experiences I've had with traditional versus self-publishing versus Kickstarter versus other stuff. And whenever I write a post, I get like all this email from everyone telling me what to do because everyone has anecdata. You know, like, well, this is how it worked for me. So obviously my model should work for you automatically. Yeah, I want to say because this is, I mean, <laughs> this is something. I mean, I see this a lot in business. That's that's why it bugs me. But the the premise is that if you just find some really successful person and ask them how they did it, that'll give you good advice. Right. And that's like it seems to me that that's like going to someone who won the lottery and saying, "Well, how'd you do it?" And they said, "Well, I bought a lottery ticket." And you're like, "Okay, must buy a lottery ticket." 
Where like the actual strategy is not actually very good. It's just, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, actually, you know, when I studied constitutional law, there's this saying that extreme cases make bad law. And I think there's a similar thing here that extreme outliers. And and it it, you end up with a sort of cargo cult imitation thing where people are just trying to do the exact same thing they saw someone successful do. You know, I'm I'm very happy with the digital self-publishing. I think it's another wonderful piece of the pie, but you know, it's not exactly putting me in, you know, gold-rimmed Cadillacs right now. And I still get these angry people that will will tell me when I mention that, they'll say like, well, you just need to do an original project and, and abandon your mm-hmm. traditional publishing and just do your next project digital only and you'll make so much more money. And I always say, if you're so sure of that, why don't you give me the same amount as my traditional publishing deal as an advance and I'll give you 50% of my royalties. Mm-hmm. And you'll make lots of money. And so far, no one's taken me up hmm. on that offer because it's an honest thing. I, you know, if you can match my traditional publishing deal, I would do a 50-50 royalty split with you um, because they're still paying me a lot more you know, than I make off of the digital products. Uh, I mean, I'm in a position now where I'm actually really fascinated by everything that's happening because I'm sort of wondering if I need to rethink how I approach uh, doing anthologies and stuff because I've I've obviously had this experience publishing Lightspeed, and so I've gotten a taste of what self-publishing is like. And at the same time, I've also had some bad experiences recently with my traditional publishers. Like I've had one publisher who owed me a lot of money for a long time, and then they finally paid. Uh, But now the sales from that publisher are not performing as they used to. And I don't know why that is. I don't know if it's because they're having a tough time or what the is it just that those books sold as much as they're going to sell, really, and everything is just slowed down a lot. But so there's things like that. And then also like doing an anthology can be really complicated because the publisher really wants a lot of big names uh, on the cover or whatever. So people that have established fan bases that you know, who and their fan bases will buy this book because they have a story in it. And so it's it's a lot of recruiting and stuff like that. And so I recently sold one book to a publisher and they just wanted more and more and more, you know, and they just wanted like no, none of the names I had was good enough. And it's like, this is an amazing table of contents. I don't know what the problem is. Yeah. And at the same time, they were offering barely any money for it. Like I, I'm actually going to lose money doing the book because I am paying the authors a minimum professional wage for the book and it's like yeah but they just they they, nothing i was doing was enough for them and it's like it's just so frustrating and it does make me think about like well i mean couldn't this have been more financially viable for me to just do it myself sure and and it's it's interesting like how those tipping points change based on project based on writer and based on everything for me because like the most obvious case for me in in realizing that there was more profit in self-publishing uh with my novels it's a complete toss-up you know you can argue all day i'll show you my excel spreadsheets um you know and i i think i'm doing the right thing by splitting you know doing some novels in self-publishing and some with traditional I'm, i'm happy with what i'm doing there but the very obvious place where the cost benefit dynamics changed obviously for me where i would say like i don't see myself selling uh, or going with traditional publishing is my short story collections. You know, when I first did a short story collection, I made a very little advance. No big publishers were interested in it. I had to go with a smaller publisher. And, you know, it was this sort of uphill battle. But I, I did a Kickstarter for my latest short story collection and made way more than I would have doing it with any other group and it's continuing to make a a nice chunk of money for me every month. And just the, 
dynamics of it, just there's no way I could have come out any better than I did than doing the Kickstarter for it and selling it to my fans directly and then putting it up on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. So for me, you know, I just look at that spreadsheet and look at the differences and go immediately like, okay, this is obviously more profitable for me to do it this way. And from now on, whenever I do a short story collection, unless someone shows up and says, I'd like to pay you a million dollars for one, which seems not likely, (laughs) um, I will be doing, you know, self-publishing and doing a Kickstarter for any future short story collections. Yeah. And I mean, even the money aside, it seems like there was also all sorts of intangible reasons that you might not want to go with a traditional publisher. I mean, I've really been reluctant to jump into writing novels just because, you know, it just seems like they want a book that's about 100,000 words. And I don't think most books should be 100,000 words. And it's like, if the book doesn't do well, then they drop you. And if the book does do well, they want you to write another version of that book. And sort of it's like a loop that that process just mm-hmm. repeats until it doesn't do well and then they drop you. And uh, just just the idea that you would publish one book and then sort of be locked into every year they want 100,000 words on basically the same subject is like not at all what I signed up for, mm-hmm. you know, wanting to be a writer. It's because I wanted to be creative. I wanted to do different kinds of things all the time and experiment, you know. Yeah, I think one- we have more flexibility to do that than we realize. You know, I just think that uh, it's easy to for both your agent and editor to get a proposal that says like, oh, look, he's going to do another thing that is roughly the same length and the same kind of book. And it's easy to sell on down the line because we're dealing, you know, when you're dealing with a publishing house, you're dealing with a corporation, you know, primarily. And, you know, it's sort of it's easier for them to sort of conceive of a proposal that says like, oh, it's going to be like this, but more of it. I think that sometimes as writers, we undervalue our own creativity. And I think sometimes we forget to follow our own passion because we're so invested in this dream of wanting to become a writer or make a living off of writing. And that we make concessions that we didn't even necessarily have to make. Or at least I see a lot of people doing this. You know, um, I was talking to a, a writer I really enjoy and admire recently. And I was talking about the fact that I'm getting ready to do a whole new, I've done, you know, books in series, but I was, you know, working on a completely original concept and having fun with it just for kicks and giggles. You know, I just try to follow my own wandering creativity as much as I can. And, and I started work on this project and I've, at the time I had said I had no idea if I would sell it or if it was a good idea or if it was the stupidest thing I'd ever done, but it was a fun project and I, I wrote a book on it and I was finished it up and was very happy with it. And the person kind of looked at me wistfully and went, oh shit, I think I've forgotten to pay attention to writing original books because I have nothing but series planned for the next X number of years. Like I'm kind of locked into this and I'm not sure how that happened. But I think sometimes, yeah, we we tend to, even without the publishing house asking us to, keep offering what we think is expected when we can actually go follow our own passion just a little bit more than we realize. But in self-publishing, of course, you completely, totally have that ability. And what you said, David, about the lengths is interesting to me because I've been wanting to do more novellas and short, short novels, uh, basically, which, of course, uh, you know, Hugh has been demonstrating is perfectly financially feasible. I grew up reading a lot of those really short novels of the 60s and 70s, you know, that were like 40,000 words, really lean novels. And, you know, the uh, reason 
everyone began to write these longer and longer novels back in the late 80s and 90s and 2000s, the reason for 100,000 being in uh, that sweet spot is because you wanted that thick spine in the bookstore. And so that's like a commercial pressure. If you can get like a, a book that's thick, but not too thick to sit in that spine out position that gets you enough, you know, attention and wandering eye tracking, you know, just basic natural selection, there's a chance that you might do a little bit better. And publishers are aware of that and asking for thicker and thicker spines. Well, and they can't price it any lower than a certain point. Right. Because some, quite a few book readers who've who uh, browse physical books, buy books by the pound because you say like, oh, I can buy this really short book for $5.99 or I can buy this thick doorstop for $7.99. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm going to go for the doorstop, you know, and, and that creates sort of uh, pressure on writers to sort of expand. And one thing I really do enjoy about direct publishing is that readers are willing to entertain a wide range and my short novel or novella, The Executionist, which I did as a companion novella with Paolo Bacigalupi, we just did this shared world that we came up with, and we each wrote uh, a novella. Um, the novellas are about 22,000 words, and readers engage with them as short novels. And so my novella, The Executionist, tends to sell just like a novel does, and it, it, it reaps me a nice little monthly stipend and has me continuously entertaining this idea of sort of doing more novellas uh, over the upcoming years once I start finishing up some of these contracts I have, because I really enjoy writing real short, punchy novels that get from point A to point B in like 30,000 words. And I'd be curious to see if that was a way to build up uh, a sort of a direct digital career. One of the reasons I think Hugh was able to really succeed was because not only did he have five short things available that comprised the Will Omnibus, you know, it's like he had the first one that was available for free. So you could hook people with that free one. And yes. then you have and then you have four more volumes. And if they love the first one, which most people seem to, they're just going to go buy all four of them. They're not even going to just buy the second one. They're going to buy all four of them because they want to get to the end of the story and see what happens. And so I think, I think that's that, genius, by the way. The There's one area of critique I, I, I will come down on larger publishers for is their unwillingness to sort of really low price the first book of a series where it's mm-hmm. just completely obvious to me that, you know, for example, I have a book series, uh, Crystal Rain Ragamuffin Sly Mongoose through a traditional publisher. And I would love to just have the first one be free and then the second one $2.99 and the second one $3.99 and bring the readers up to $4.99 and then stay there. And, you know, that's just something that is, it doesn't seem to be on the table because it's a book published with a large corporation. And the idea of the danger of free for that first one is so prevalent that, you know, every mm-hmm. time I kind of meekly suggest that like, Hey guys, why don't we do this? Like, you know, stepped pricing structure and just see if it works. You know, there's this sort of like resounding silence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of, again, like I'm still very early on in my career, but uh, one of the things I'd love to do is to do that exact thing, which is to do uh, a first book free and step up the price a little bit on, the following ones just to see what would happen. Yeah, my my wife uh, went to this Launchpad workshop, which is like an astronomy workshop for writers. Uh, and she and and one of her classmates was this guy named Doug Farron. And uh, apparently, he's one of these guys who uh, I don't know if he's quite making a living, but he's making enough that he's considering quitting his day job anyway because he's he's just self publishing and and cool. and he's doing quite well at it. But he was echoing the same thing that 
Uh, I don't think that his novels are short novels, like we were saying, but he does have several of them out there. And what he seems to be encountering is that when people read that first one and they like it, they do. They just go buy the whole, you know, the whole his whole bibliography. Sure. And, well, the number one reason a reader buys a book is because they enjoyed a previous book by the author. Once they've enjoyed something of yours, they're in. Yeah, I think uh, authors who have who have written a lot of short stories and then they're and they're getting into self-publishing and maybe they have novels they want to self-publish. It can be really beneficial to have those short stories out there, too, whether in a collection like you were saying that you do or or if you have them up as individual uh, stories for 99 cents or something or if you do both. I mean, you can have the individual stories, you could have the collected version as well. And so just so that you have a lot of different content available there for the reader to encounter once they find that first thing of yours that they love and they want to get more. Yeah. Now, now, John, you were—I didn't actually realize that Wool One was free on Amazon, and I thought you were saying you can't actually make stuff free on Amazon, or you have to jump through right. hoops. Or... Uh, there are some hoops that you have to jump through because Amazon won't let you price anything less than ninety-nine cents, but Amazon will price match. So, for instance, you can upload your ebook to Smashwords, and on Smashwords, you can make it for free. And so, eventually, Amazon will notice that Smashwords has it available for free, and they'll price match and make it free. There are other promotions you can sign up for, I believe, that lets you make something for free. But I think you have to sign like an exclusivity contract with them or whatever for like a month or something like that. KDB, um, and it, KDB, KDP Select is what that is. Yeah, and uh -huh. yeah, they let you give it away free for a week every month. But yeah, so but if you want it to just be free altogether, if you can get it listed free somewhere else, and, and like I was saying, Smashwords does let you make it free, um, Amazon will theoretically, their spiders will find it and then lower the price automatically. For Lightspeed, we have this ebook sampler that we okay. just we we pulled together stories from various issues and we put them together and felt like okay, well, this is a good representative sample of what reading an issue of Lightspeed is like. And we wanted to just put it on Amazon and make it available for free, but because there is no way to make it for free, we haven't done it. And I don't want to put it on Amazon and, and even list it for ninety nine cents because I don't feel like I I mean I'd have to get additional permissions from the authors. I feel like in or, if I'm going to sell it. And so I haven't done that, but I have thought about maybe trying to get the first issue of Lightspeed or, or something like that, or like maybe the first issue since, since I merged it with fantasy. So it's like a contemporary uh, sampler of what Lightspeed's like now um, and just making that issue available for free and see how that does to help uh, people try it out. Cause if they could just try it for free, I mean, I mean, the thing is they can try any of Lightspeed for free cause it's all online for free, but I think there's a different type of reader that reads it on the website and then reads the ebook edition. So, sure. I, I think Amazon has an ecosystem of readers that's separate. I mean, one thing I wanted to talk about is that Hugh was basically saying he doesn't see any upside to going with the traditional <laughs> publisher. And I think for him, probably there wouldn't, wouldn't have been. But no, I think wouldn't. for, you know, I, we must be able to come up with some upsides to going with the traditional publisher. Uh, well, so. I'll talk about the upsides for me. I mean, uh, for me, the upside is that it is I am not able to tap into the community the way he has. And none of what I've done has fired you know, that kind of uh, reaction. I have a website where I have, you know, 2,000 or so people a day come through. But for me, uh, my readership and my exposure to new readers really grew when I was able to get into bookstores. I mean, that is the fulcrum point of my career. And it grows as I'm able to keep uh, getting more and more exposure that way. Tor has been able to be sort of like a lever that I can stand on that gets me exposed to a larger readership than I've been able to achieve on my own well um, actually let's toby let's talk about this i mean you you, you in your xeno wealth series you published crystal rain ragamuffin and slime on goose with tor right correct and then they decided they didn't want to 
continue the series? Well, actually, that's not true. Uh, we just we both mutually discontinued it. It sounds like uh, hearing someone who broke up say we mutually <laughs> happily decided to do it. But the problem there was uh, the bookstores were doing the classic uh, spiral where they're ordering fewer and fewer copies, while at the same time direct orders were rising. So my sales were essentially just purely flat, you know. And so I was on each of the books I earned out you know, and was made some royalties, but it looked pretty clear that if I did the fourth and fifth book through tour, that I'd make exactly the same amount of money as I'd made previously. And I saw no way to really grow my career there. So, you know, my editor and I both sat down and had a real good heart to heart about that in late 2008, uh, before I came down with uh, some health problems. And, and I said, you know, I really want to try doing something different than if you guys all feel that the bookstores are going to stock fewer and fewer copies of the next Xenowulf books. So we just decided to discontinue it, and I wrote a book called Arctic Rising for Tor instead to replace uh, the fourth book in the Xenowulf series. And what ended up happening was that Kickstarter came along and direct publishing got more and more readers and, and more and more of an infrastructure. So by the time last year rolled around, I decided to do a Kickstarter project to get enough pre-orders together that I had enough money to take four months off from my freelancing and other fiction projects to work on that book for my fans and sell it to them directly. So it was a mutual decision on, on our parts. And Arctic Rising got ended up getting more bookstore interest. I guess what I wanted to get at, though, was that having done those three books with a traditional publisher, they had been in bookstores, you had professional cover art, they'd all had professional copy editing and, and so on. And then you could take those put them out as ebooks. You can still use all those covers and all the edited text, right? Uh, I don't have the rights to them because uh, Tor uh, just off uh, is is going to be uh, reissuing them down the line. So I don't have the ebook rights to them. I just have the ebook rights to the Xenowulf, uh, the fourth book. So it's just a weird situation. <laughs> well, uh, typically the, the author, if the rights revert, uh, they wouldn't have the rights to the cover art at all. Correct. It's a, it's a little unclear who has the rights to the actual final copy edited text because the publishers could claim that that is their work and that you only own the original manuscript before it was ever edited. And I have heard of some com some publishers complaining about that kind of thing. That's a um, Yeah, yeah, certainly. But yeah, I mean, I don't think any publisher would fight you over the copy edited text. Uh, getting it out of them might be another issue. I personally, like I, you know, because I reprint stories a lot, it, it's like you would think I would be able to just get the text of any story pretty easily electronically. For instance, if uh, the publisher, if if a major publisher has done a collection of, of an author's work, I should be able to just say, hey, you know, hey, uh, hey, famous author, do you have that copy? They say no. And then I say, <laughs> well, maybe I can ask my friend who works at the publisher. And then I ask them and they're like, no, we can't send it. And it's like, why not? And it's like, and it's just like, oh, well, or we can, but uh, we'll charge you $200. What? <laughs> it's like to send me the text of a story. Uh, so it's just it's just kind of ridiculous. But um, but yeah, the cover art is is not typically granted. Okay, but you couldn't negotiate with them to use the cover art. I mean, what else are they going to do with it if it's a picture of your characters? I well, mean, it, it's you know the trick is to go talk to the artist directly. Yeah. The artist has rights as well. The artist does not want you to be able to just grab it and do whatever you want because it's kind of like us ha having reprint rights with a short story. It's the same kind of thing and in, in other words they when the cover artist makes that agreement and licenses that image to the publisher it is for that one project right it's, it's for that it's, edition 
it's for that edition. You don't get the rights to that image to do whatever you want with for the rest of your life because they have the ability to sell those covers into other markets. They can sell them to the foreign editions. They can, you know, sell prints of them. And, and so the artists would like to also have creative control over those things as well. So the person you have to usually talk to is go talk to the artist about permission to use that cover art. And then, but then you would have to get different cover design as well. So you could use the same art, but you'd have to have different cover design because the cover design does belong to the publisher. Right. Okay. So just for the sake of argument though, it's, it's really nice art Mm -hmm. and you could probably negotiate with the artist to use it for much cheaper than it would be to commission some comparable piece of professional art. Right. Exactly. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. This is what I did for the short novel, The Executionist. Um, I, you know, went and paid the artist for the right to use uh, their art. And Bill at Subterranean Press was really nice and let me use uh, the elements of cover design so that uh, I could get that same look for the ebook that I had for the print edition. I guess the point I was trying to get at once once upon a time was that <laughs> having gone with a traditional publisher, you get sort of many of the advantages of that. And mm-hmm. then once the rights revert to you, you're in no worse a position than you would be, and in some ways a better position than you would be if you had just gone the indie route to start with or this is you know i this is what i feel for myself i've you know i've made the argument that the best of both worlds is to go with a traditional publisher get that larger audience that you may not have gotten by yourself or that i certainly couldn't get by myself and then once the book goes out of print you take that you know and put it up as an ebook yourself and then you get the backlist and if you're able to do better than your publisher was able to, then total win. If not, you still had that process. And that's why I caution people about the sort of gold rush mentality. Like, there's no rush. I mean, you can do it and still get the rights back. You know what I mean? The flip side to it is that publishers are getting kind of rights grabby. And so they're building in clauses if you don't have a good agent. They're building in clauses that say, your book is not out of print easily. So like if you sell like just a handful of electronic copies or ebooks, they still consider it in print. And that's the kind of thing to watch out for. And and that's one reason why it's kind of nice to have an agent that can negotiate a much better contract. You want the definition of out of print to be as in your favor as possible so you can get those ebook rights back eventually. And one thing that interested me in what Hugh was saying that I think I would actually think about as as a as a modern writer and, and moving forward is that overseas they ha- approach copyright and imprint differently than they do in the US which is you license terms of copyright for x number of years so like for example the french edition of my first novel will have like uh, a number of years that they get the rights to try and sell it in, in France and then after that 5 year period no matter what happens the rights revert to me and they have to renegotiate or I just get the rights back automatically. And I think that's substantially much more fair than the current system we have in the US because it gives authors an automatic rights back no matter what the intellectual property rights grab might be regarding the technical definition of out of print. And that interests me that some authors are beginning to Opt out of sell, uh, one wanting to opt out of selling to the U.S. to sell initially overseas so that they can keep digital rights here in the U.S., but then mm. sell print overseas. And then if the U.S. wants print rights, then they can sell them. It seems to me that that's not a bad strategy. 
Well, and then another advantage of going with a traditional publisher is that you could get a really large advance. Like you hear reports about people getting a $500,000 advance or a million dollar advance. And it's hard to look at those people and say like, oh, they should have gone KDP direct or whatever. You know, <laughs> they, they really missed their chance, right? I mean, and so a lot of it depends on what kind of a position you're in, you know, what kind of a, an offer you might get from a traditional publisher, right? Those type of offers are both a blessing and a curse because they're a blessing because obviously you get that money up front and that's your money. On the other hand, if you want to continue selling books, that might be a curse because what if the book doesn't perform to expectations and the publishers and like you become persona non grata because they're like, oh, this book. Well, then really you become an indie author with $100,000 yeah, $100, in your pocket. Right? Well, I guess that's true. I would love to sell a book for half a million and then like have it completely <laughs> tank and run off and become a KDP author. I mean, there are worse things in this world. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, actually, I mean, I mean, basically, once you get the big payday, it's like, uh, you know, you have to be pretty stupid to not be able to, to manage to make that make money for you for the rest of your life, really. Screw you guys. I'm going home. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, would you say that there's a certain threshold of advance that you should aim for? And like, it's like 10,000 or bust. And if not, I'm going KDP, anything like that. I don't know. I, I It's so hard to give advice like that. You know, it's all so specific. I mean, I started out at at $5,000 in the very low end of traditional publishing and I've worked my way up into, you know, nicer advances. And I've been happy with what I did, even with seeing how much I can make off of a direct publishing item, you know, because some of the direct publishing stuff I'm doing is making hundreds, you know, it doesn't compare to, to five figure stuff. So it's so hard to make that call, you know, it depends on so many different things. And I just would say like, try to find the best advice you can and try to game out the best situations you can and run with that. You know, um, I, gosh, I hate being so gray. You know, I wish I could just be black and white. You know, it just really screwed me to be this complex about things. I mean, after I did the Kickstarter for the apocalypse ocean, um, a whole bunch of people like, you know, some really cool news outlets contacted me to talk to me about crowdfunding and, you know, disintermediation and the new face of book publishing. And the fact that I wasn't willing to sort of say, you know, hmm. screw traditional publishing, I'm indie forever and hmm. here's the tattoo and, you know, I'm going to fight the man. It's, it's the little people are rising <laughs> up and, and all of that rhetoric um, meant that I, I lost all these chances to be, uh, they, like people would just stop returning. Like they were all excited to email me and, and call me. And then all of a sudden it was just crickets. <laughs> uh, you know, there's even a place that was going to fly me out to have me talk about the future of publishing. And then when they found out that I had a book, the Arctic rising coming out from tour basically just dropped and <laughs> dropped the whole speakers gig, you know? Wow. And, and so it's like, there's a strong narrative about that, you know, that, people are really plugging into. And of course, here I am going like, well, it depends and no one wants to hear that. Hmm. And it does suck that I don't have easy answers, you know, because I don't even have easy answers for each project I do, you know, and even my agent doesn't have easy answers. I uh, recently got an offer not too long ago where my agent called and said like, you know what, this one's right on the edge. He's like, mm -hmm. I, I can see an argument for you saying you're going to self-publish and, and turn this down and walk away from it. And I can see an argument for going with the with this deal. And we talked it over and I said, look, I'm going to go with the deal for these five reasons. This is what I have in my head as why I want to do that. And he goes, yeah. But I'm like, yeah, you're right. It's right on the line. Like the amount of money that was offered to me was so small that I went, gosh, I could run a, a, a scenario in my head off of a spreadsheet that would definitely have me coming out with more money on the other side. But there are some benefits that I could see to doing it, you know, traditionally that I, I went with it. So 
when I look at someone else, I can't come up with a figure. Uh, it's, it's really hard because I don't know. It depends on how much buzz you have. It depends on how big your audience is. It depends on how awesome the story is and how far it'll go. If you're someone who has no latent audience, going with the traditional publisher might grow you that audience so that like later on down the road, you could go indie. You know, a lot of the people who are doing really good money indie have started out with traditional publishing and then jumped. And that has built their readership pool. And that has obviously been good for them. And then there's some people where you look at them and you go like, you know what, you're quirky. Uh, you're having trouble like selling your stuff. And actually, I think you might be better off doing limited editions on, you know, by yourself and doing some print on demand and going direct because your readership will appreciate it more and you'll be able to bring the price down and it'll be all good. And so it just depends on so many variables that I think that authors just have to get into this mindset of like creating art and then going out and being a business person and trying to Mm -hmm. figure out how best to get there. And, you know, ultimately it's like, you know, throw yourself against all the walls. (laughs) Actually, Toby. Okay. So one thing I really want to ask you about is that it seems like in the time that we've been writing, there's been this whole boom and bust cycle of new uh, social media kind of things. Like when you started out, you know, if you were an author with a blog, even if you hadn't published anything, you had like thousands of readers like, oh my God, it's an author with a blog. Yeah. And a couple of years later, nobody cared. You know, it's like, well, I could read Neil Gaiman's blog. So what do I need any other author's blogs for? Yeah. And that happens over and over again with MySpace and Twitter and et cetera. And so I just wonder, like, is a big part of Hugh Howey's success, this narrative you're talking about that, and, and with Kickstarter too, I, I wonder about that there was a period where I was writing articles for Wired.com and it was a story that someone was doing a Kickstarter and you know, like three months or something, they weren't interested anymore in Kickstarter yeah. stories. It, it stopped being a story. And so is, is this going to be another boom and bust sort of thing with KDP and with Kickstarter? You know, this is why I always test out different things myself because I've been through a few boom and bust cycles. I remember when the author MJ Rose, I think was her name, was this huge self-publishing success. I remember when it was uh, that there was this big deal made over the uh, Christopher Paolini. You remember when that was going to change mm-hmm. publishing? You're, I remember some print-on-demand authors that exploded out, and that was going to be the you know that it's you know when you get plugged into this story of fighting the dominant structure and paradigm, it becomes a very easy sort of viral, repetitive story. I don't think that's the 100% the reason for Hugh's success, but I think that there are elements of that that get picked up on by people and that gets a lot of attention. But just as Amanda Hawking is going on to do just fine and selling a lot of books, I think, you know, part of the thing is that there's a secret sauce and a great story that just goes out and does its own thing. It has its own momentum. It, it spreads. Um, and well, I, I just, I guess, Toby, I just, I want to make very clear that Hugh Howey's Wool is a fantastic book. Yeah. And yeah. it's not a surprise at all to me that it's done so well because you read it, like I read it and I can't put it down and I want to tell everyone I meet, right. you got to read this. Yeah. Um, but the thing is that I have that reaction to other books that no one's ever heard of or will ever yeah, heard exactly, of. Yeah, right? exactly. Me too. Exactly. Right. Right. And, and so that, uh, you know, like, so that boom bust cycle you're talking about is something I'm actually very passionate about talking to new writers about because I've been through, you know, you just talked about that. We went through the Christopher Paolini. I remember MJ Rose, I, I, you know, and I'm, you remember when podcasting was going to change the way in which narrative was done. And that was the, for a while, that was a big deal about authors podcasting their own books. That was a huge sort of thing where everyone started jumping and trying to do that. Um, I remember just when 
putting stuff up on websites was going to change the entire publishing structure. And there was this huge explosion of stories about that. And, you know, HTML uh, adventure uh, stories with HTML in them uh, and markup and like pop-ups were going to, it was, you know, like, I remember when FictionWise came out, which they just got acquired by Barnes & Noble, but when FictionWise came out, there was an author I remember who had a bunch of short stories up on it and had made like $1,000 on each story. And he told me, I have a backlist of 50 short stories. I'm going to put them all up on FictionWise. They're all going to make $1,000. I'm going to make $50,000 a, a year and I'm quitting my day job. And I remember running into him like a year and a half later and, and being like, you know, how's it going? And he's like, yeah, well, they sell $50 a month now. And so having seen like everyone get excited and stampede on this and stampede on that over time and get very excited about different things, I, I, I sort of have gotten burnt out and a little bit cynical where I go like, oh, yeah, I'll test something out and see if there's something there. But I tend not to get as excited anymore about the death of whatever. One danger to the whole KDP, you know, Barnes and Noble puppet, et cetera, uh, self-publishing environment is like, what happens if Amazon, say, decides to change that royalty structure and it's no longer the author getting 70% in that span of prices, two ninety nine yeah. to nine ninety nine? What happens when they change that? The thing is, like, that is a danger. And so like if all your eggs are in that basket, that can really screw an author. But I'm hopeful that there are enough alternatives out there that everyone would just abandon whoever decides to go that route and mm -hmm. or something new would rise because of that and become the new go-to place. And that would just damage whoever decides to, to go that route. Because, you know, at first, uh, I mean, Amazon is actually the one that got that 70% thing happening. At, at first, it was like, I, I think, uh, I think iBooks. iBooks was the first and Amazon yeah. responded. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, before that happened, uh, I mean, 30% or 35% or whatever was sort of a normal thing that you would get as a royalty. Companies decided to match that 70% once other people started offering it. And so. Hopefully that'll be around to stay. But if, it, if somebody does decide to change and everybody follows suit, then what happens? Well, I still remember uh, quite a few years back, there was this period where eBay fees were small enough that a lot of people were making a living on eBay mm -hmm. by selling and reselling stuff. And I remember this day came where eBay tweaked and, and, and uh, doubled its fees. And overnight... Hundreds of people suddenly had their livelihoods destroyed by that tweak. And I remember talking to some of the people as a result of that fallout. And it was just one of those lessons I learned about eggs in one basket that has stayed with me ever since. And I do, you know, that's the sort of thing that stops me from putting all my eggs in a KDP basket, which is I look at that and I, and I look at the fact that Amazon has come out with KDP Select so that you can only give away stories free if you sign up to be just with them. And right now, if you want to get 70% from India and Brazil and uh, some burgeoning ebook markets there, they've now added in very quietly the fact that you have to be Amazon only to get 70%. Otherwise, you get a 35% royalty rate for sales over there. So they're slowly starting to creep back down the amount that you can get um, in order to sort of uh, sort of force you to either be with them or just them, which makes me nervous because it shows as far as Amazon corporate is concerned, they view that as a tool to make writers do what they want, 
which indicates that they do have a willingness to use it as a club. Whether or not everyone would have the wherewithal to all move away from Amazon if they decided to change them on a larger uh, scale, I don't know. But I go, ah, all of a sudden Kickstarter looks more interesting to me. I want to make sure I've got lots of fingers and lots of different pies so that like, if any one thing changes dramatically, I'm again not caught flat-footed. So the reason I have books on KDP is so that if publishing suddenly collapses overnight, I've got a smooth transition. But the reason I have fingers in Kickstarter is so that if KDP suddenly like throws up a hairball, I can transition there because I've got readers trained to buy Tobias S. Buckel fiction in lots of different ways. They can buy me from publishers, they can buy me direct, they can participate in Kickstarters. Or the thing I push as much as I can is I've set it up on my website so that anything I own the rights to, you can buy directly. And I love it when people do that because instead of getting 70%, I get 100%. <laughs> and I like 100%. All right, cool. So I think uh, that's a good place to end things on. So uh, just before we let you go, Toby, do you have any new projects, uh, anything coming out that you want to mention? Uh, sure. Hopefully sometime next year, Tor will be putting out my next uh, novel, Hurricane Fever. And I have just sold two young adult novels to Tor Star Starscape. Uh, the first novel will be The Island in the Sky, and hopefully that will also be out in 2014. Uh, other than that, I just... Uh, have some stuff up on Amazon that I sell directly, like Mitigated Futures is my latest short story collection. It's uh, right now the number two bestseller in Kindle uh, Cyberpunk. So that's pretty been pretty fun. Uh, do you want to just say a little bit about just the premise of some of those books, like Hurricane Fever? What's that about? Uh, Hurricane Fever is the sequel to Arctic Rising. It is sort of a Caribbean spy adventure set in the near future where global warming and super hurricanes have, are hitting the East Coast and Caribbean. As for the island in the sky, I, you know, I still don't have my like clever one sentence description of that book, but I sort of uh, call it Charlie and the Chocolate Factory meets uh, Rendezvous with Rama. Huh. It's a C. Clark's novel about a giant uh, alien starship that passes through the solar system. And uh, it's a young adult novel about a kid who ends up getting to explore an alien starship as it uh, passes through the Caribbean and offers a chance for passengers to uh, join it on a sort of uh, interstellar adventure. All right, cool. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So, Toby, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. And big thanks again to Hugh Howey for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to Calla Scott for giving us five stars on iTunes and Daniel Brisbois for becoming subscriber number 43. To see a list of all our subscribers, visit our website at geekskyshow.com and click on subscribe. In response to our story on Games Workshop trademarking the term Space Marines, Listener Laura Dirks posted this comment to our Facebook page, quote, I was completely horrified when I heard about this. I teach children to share every day. I wish adults would behave better than my mental health clients. So thank you, Laura, for listening and commenting. And please, everyone, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Geeks Galaxy. And if you live in the New York area and want to meet up with me and other listeners, follow us on Twitter at GeeksGuideNYC. All right, so that was our show. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced 
by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.